How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Would capping and trading carbon pollution create a prosperous and clean economy, or would it burden consumers and be a boondoggle for Wall Street and opportunists in developing countries? Touted as a market-based way to internalize the cost of carbon now spewed for free into our air, cap-and-trade is at the center of America's quest for a national energy policy. California and about two dozen states in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico are pursuing a cap-and-trade system intended to be the foundation of a North American carbon market. In Washington, D.C., a law creating a national market is either dead in the water on life support or very much alive, depending on who was asked. Here to discuss these issues with our audience in San Francisco, we have three viewpoints from an expert economist, Larry Goulder, as chair of the Department of Economics at Stanford University, an avid advocate, Kristen Eberhardt, as a legal director at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and a fervent skeptic, Michael Schellenberger, president of the Breakthrough Institute. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, Professor Goulder, let's start with you. So if you could just please define what is cap-and-trade. What, what does it do and how does it... Yeah, just define the terms for us. You mean everybody doesn't already know? <laughs> cap-and-trade is a way to create incentives to reduce the combustion of fossil fuels or other uh, uh, greenhouse gas, either other greenhouse gases, and it does so in the following way. First, as the word cap suggests... Uh, the regulating authority, whether it's at the level of U.S. government or California or the level of Kyoto internationally, sets a cap, a total amount of greenhouse gas emissions, say carbon dioxide, that's authorized under the plan, the cap being less than what would ordinarily happen in the absence of policy. Then the second aspect is that the government issues allowances or permits where each permit entitles the holder to a certain amount of emissions in a certain amount of time the total number of permits coincides with the total cap. So since there's a limited supply of permits, that means there's a limited amount of emissions that are allowed. Then, as the word trade suggests, these permits can be traded. And those who tout cap and trade, and I have to admit that I find a lot to like about it, uh, say that trading is a key to keeping the cost down. works like this. If you're an entity that has a certain number of allowances that you were given, but it costs you a huge amount to try to reduce your emissions down to the number of the amount of emissions consistent with your current holdings, you're going to find it advantageous to purchase additional allowances because the market price of allowances is going to be less than uh, what it would otherwise cost you to reduce your emissions so far down. And then symmetrically, if you're someone for whom it's relatively cheap to reduce your emissions, you're going to find it's, it's, it's profitable to you to sell your allowances or sell your emissions rights Because even though that's going to mean you'll have less allowances and you have to cut your emissions more, the proceeds you get from the sale are going to be greater than the extra cost you take on. So as a result of the buying and selling of allowances, uh, those entities that can do it most cheaply will end up doing more of the work. Those entities for which it's expensive will do less. And yet all parties will gain, both the buyer and the seller. So in principle, you know, there's no change in the total amount of emissions. There's just a change in who's going to be doing it. And studies have indicated, for example, under the cap-and-trade system, under the sulfur dioxide trading or acid rain trading under the Clean Air Act, that costs have been reduced by about 30 to 50 percent relative to if they had just a simple cap or simple conventional regulation. So that's the... um, That's the merit of cap-and-trade, is that through trading, you can keep the cost down. The government doesn't have to figure out who can do it at least cost. The market will do it. So it's a market-based solution for low cost. Kristen Eberhard, a lot of environmental groups prefer cap-and-trade over the other alternatives, tax, et cetera. Why? Why do you think cap-and-trade is the best way to achieve, stabilize the climate? Well, I wouldn't say that we necessarily prefer it over the other alternatives. We actually see that we have lots of tools at our disposal. I do most of my work in California, and I think that the good news that I bring to you all here tonight is that we really know what to do, 
and many of the solutions to um, reducing global warming emissions and stabilizing the climate are already at play or are being implemented now in California. One of the solutions is cap and trade. So in California, we have a plan to reduce our global warming emissions to 1990 levels by 2020. And 80% of those emissions reductions are going to come from other policies other than cap and trade. Cap and trade we see as an essential part of the package because it's sort of the backstop that says we cannot go past here. We have to reduce at least down to this point. And cap and trade ensures that you get that. The, the, the cap is really the important part of the policy that says we know that we have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. We know we have to reduce them to this level. But it's combined with other policies that do other things we know that we need to do, such as invest in energy efficiency, which saves people money, invest in renewable power, which helps us move in towards a clean energy future, make our cars cleaner, make our fuels cleaner. Those are all um, part of the package, and cap-and-trade is the backstop. Okay, so it's one piece of a suite, suite of tools. Uh, Michael Schellenberger, in your book, uh, Breakthrough, uh, you wrote that cap-and-trade if, could, if done right, generate billions of dollars in private investment for cleaner sources of energy. As such, it offers one of the best opportunities for environmentalism to evolve into a politics of possibility. Is that still your view? Um, yeah. Uh uh, thanks for the question. Thanks for having me. I wanted to clarify one thing, which is that uh, I'm a longstanding environmentalist and a critic of cap and trade, and we were critical of it in, in Breakthrough as well. I'm not a global warming skeptic at all. Uh, that word used in this context can be very misleading. Um, uh, so I'm a major advocate for a strong action on global warming, uh, um, but a critic of the current policy agenda. Um, yeah, uh, in 2007, it looked like there might be a possibility of having a cap and trade approach that would uh, generate money through auctioning pollution allowances to firms, and then you could use that money to invest in technology. That's not the cap-and-trade that we got uh, out of the House, and it's certainly not the cap-and-trade that we're, uh, we're going to get out of the Senate. Um, to, to say a little something about uh, kind of a broader view of this and why this even matters, the world is going to roughly double or triple its energy consumption between now and 2050. Uh, during that period of time, if we want to keep uh, temperatures around uh, 2 degrees centigrade increase, we've got to cut emissions about 80%, um, uh, and, and, and arguably even more in the developed world. So the challenge is massive. You've got to massively deploy a huge amount of low-carbon energy, which right now is a lot more expensive than fossil fuels, which are, which are really the backbone of human civilization, of human development. They're cheap. They're energy-dense. They store energy. Um, compared to things like solar and windmills, they're just superior in every way except for being a lot dirtier. Uh, the good news is that human civilization, has, uh, as societies and nations develop, they end up using cleaner and cleaner sources of energy, mostly for health reasons. Um, so the, the question is, how do you accelerate a technological process of moving to cleaner sources of energy? And uh, I would ask, um, uh, I've, I put this question to, to advocates of cap-and-trade for the last few years, show me one example throughout history where we have uh, rationed or eliminated or restricted the use of an incumbent technology in order to favor the emergence of a new one. I, and I'm very, would like to hear, because I haven't been able to think of a single one. We didn't stop using whale oil, for example, because we were concerned about the whales. We had a superior alternative in kerosene. Um, it's going to be the same way as we move away from fossil fuels to cleaner sources of energy. They're going to be technologically superior in a variety of right ways. So if we want to uh, do something about climate change, in terms of energy, the only thing that matters is getting low-carbon energy sources to be as cheap or almost as cheap as coal. And that's the position that Google has come to when they took a hard look at it. It's the position that Bill Gates has come to when they took a hard look at it. The position we've come to. So uh, what ends up happening, we can get into some of the details of it, but basically when you get this elegant cap-and-trade proposal uh, um, that Larry described in the political process that requires raising people's electricity rates, raising the price of gasoline, raising the price of everything that requires energy, which is basically everything since it's the master resource, the political process creates all sorts of loopholes and mechanisms which we can talk about, but the bottom line is that cap-and-trade proposal that actually passed the House would allow firms in the first year of the program to pollute at levels of 140% higher than in 2005. And the way you would do that is allow them to purchase what are called carbon offsets, one-third of which to two-thirds of which Larry's, Larry's colleagues at Stanford found are actually bogus. 
um, and for a variety of re other reasons, do not represent real emissions reductions. So what we argued in Breakthrough is that there is a way to do cap-and-trade right, but it requires actually being in a different paradigm. It's a paradigm of radically accelerating technological innovation. It's not a paradigm of pollution conservation like that we had in the past. So cap-and-trade can work. It's the political system that, that's the problem. Larry, would you like to respond? Well, yes, I would. I think I agree with some of what Michael has just said. I, I think there are several points here. I disagree with some parts as well, at least as I've interpreted them. I think the first thing you said is that what's come out of the House uh, at the federal level is, is really not the cap-and-trade system that you would like the most, and I think you're referring to the fact that instead of auctioning out all the allowances to begin with to put them into circulation, a good share, a good, a good share in fact, a very large share given out free. And I agree that that can be a problem, particularly if, if so many are given out free, it can, it can create windfalls. So I think there is indeed a, the case that, that Waxman-Markey gave out somewhat more allowances free than would be necessary just to c keep profits from falling. So that's true. It's not perfect. And there's a question of you know, whether you want to accept something that's less than perfect. A second point that you made is um, that you're emphasizing the long run and what we need in terms of new technologies, game-changing technologies, breakthrough technology technologies. I agree with you 100%, though I'm not, I don't believe that that is an argument against cap-and-trade per se. What it means is that we need something along with cap-and-trade. Cap-and-trade uh, is essentially something that, consistent with basic economic theory, basic economic analysis, puts a price on fossil fuels and other greenhouse gases so that people will not overuse or over be dependent on fossil fuels, that we will move our way, we will move ourselves away from fossil fuels. In the short run, it's largely through conservation rather than through technological change. And economic analysis supports that, is dealing with the market failure associated with the fact that fossil fuels tend to be underpriced from a social point of view. That said, there's still a role for cap and trade, but what is needed as well, and economic analysis will support this, is policies that directly encourage breakthrough technologies, such as subsidies to R&D, liberalized patent rules, contests, or other. In fact, this is consistent, I think, with what Kristen was saying, which is that cap-and-trade is part of the story, but, but not the whole story. So in, in that respect, uh, I, I think that it, it, we shouldn't throw out cap-and-trade. It's still contributing, especially in the shorter term, encouraging conservation. The third thing that you mentioned uh, is about offsets. And I agree with you, in fact, I agree with my Sanford colleagues, that offsets can be a significant problem, that a lot of these offsets are bogus. They're not really real, they're not real reductions. But I think it's a mistake to think of offsets as an inherent part of cap-and-trade. You can have cap-and-trade with offsets, or you can have it without. Indeed, if you went to an alternative to cap-and-trade, like a carbon tax, you could have a carbon tax with or without offsets. So if you don't like offsets, fine, and I think there's reasonable people can say that offsets are going to be a problem, although it's now pretty much a permanent feature of the Kyoto Protocol. But if you don't like offsets, I'd say don't throw out cap-and-trade. Just make sure that the cap-and-trade system doesn't include offsets. Michael, would you agree that uh, fossil fuels are underpriced? Well, I mean, I think it's funny. The whole discourse that we have is this: is a, it's actually a, um, it's a very ahistorical discourse, and I think it's symptomatic of the amnesia that we collectively suffer from. So that when we uh, we experience our cell phones and we kind of go, God, Google and Apple, these are amazing companies. But you know, it's like um, high tech companies uh, found themselves on third base and think they hit a triple. Um, you know, we forgot that the federal government is what invented the Internet. Um, we forget that the federal government is what procured the microchips uh, and made them uh, go from $1,000 a chip to $20 a chip. I was in a discussion with some, with some colleagues uh, who said, you know, the government, it just always messes this stuff up. You know, it just always... And we were, you know, they, they can't do anything right in terms of energy technology. And somebody in the room said, well, like, but what about nuclear power plants? I mean, those were... All government. We said, well, that was like a once in a 300-year exception. Or rockets um, to the moon or things. Yeah, yeah so you right. kind of go, well, and, we, and someone else in the room was like, well, yeah, what about hydroelectric dams? And this one else was like, oh, yeah, what about electrification? And then what about wind turbines? What about gas turbines? Basically, every major energy technology has been uh, funded and demonstrated and deployed in one level or another by the state. And yet we come up with an energy technology problem which global warming is, global warming is a consequence 
also have land use changes, but here we can focus on energy. And we go, well, how do we price pollution and put these, inter- in, these externalities into the price? And again, I beg you, what example in history do we have of replacing incumbent technologies with, uh, with you know, um, less advanced technologies um, so do you, do you not think that the fossil fuels are underpriced? That, that one, they're subsidized by, uh, by the government. Uh, we had the, the uh, energy minister for Jordan was here yesterday on this stage, and he said he had a number of, I don't well, know, I'll tell you the, you know, the, the, the when we go, we go, we go are, they too, are they overpriced? Well, actually, there's 1.5 billion people in the world that use wood and dung for electricity. For them, coal is too expensive. It's not too cheap. And in the scenarios that the UN runs and the, I, the IEA run on how do you stabilize emissions, they, their models keep 1.5 billion people without dung and wood. So I would say the problem is that coal is, in, in many ways, is too expensive, not too cheap. What you need is low-carbon, um, dispatchable, available energy sources that can lift people out of poverty, that can power the world, and that can massively reduce emissions. That's not... Uh, how do we reduce our, our, our footprint? That's not how do, we re- how do we price pollution. That's not how do we internalize, externalize. That's how do you create a whole new way of powering our world. I want to get to Kristen and Kelly. I, Kristen? I actually, uh, on the issue of the federal government inventing the Internet, I thought that was Al Gore. So surely mm-hmm. he can solve this problem too, right? Um, but joking aside, I, I want to address this question of how technology develops and what role the federal government plays in technology developing. And we have an excellent historical example of how technology develops and what role the federal government and other policies play, and that's the refrigerator. So in the 1970s, the federal government did put some money into RD&D for refrigerators to say, can we make these more efficient? And they said, yes, we can. And they came up with some advances that made refrigerators more efficient. But just having the technology itself wasn't enough to deploy that technology and make everybody go and buy an efficient refrigerator. That took standards. So California implemented a standard and said, oh, the technology is possible. We've, we've shown that with some RD&D money. Now we're going to set the standard so that we're not going to make those dirty refrigerators anymore. We're going to make the efficient ones. And then once they set that standard, then the refrigerator company said, oh, standards, more efficient refrigerators, huh? I think we're going to put some more money into this and see how much more efficient we can make our refrigerators. And they pushed the technology even further. And then the government said, oh, more efficient refrigerators, great. We'll ratchet down the standard. California ratcheted down its standard. Eventually, the federal government put in place a standard for refrigerators, and the result is that over the course of 30 years, refrigerators use two-thirds less energy than they did 30 years ago, despite being bigger, having more features, deli drawers, you know, more freezers. They use two-thirds less. And yet, RD&D, absolutely, federal government money played an important role in that, but it, was the, it wasn't the only thing. And the reason for that is that technology development... For for the most part, is very iterative. It, it happens over time. It's, it's, it's uh, small incremental improvements rather than one big disruptive breakthrough. And so having um, the big R&D go in in the beginning was important to sort of starting the process, but then the iterative process continued over the course of 30 years and interacted with other government policies. So, so that's a success story that we have that California played a, a crucial role in, and we, and we know that technology development can happen in that way. Um, and then, of course, the other success story that we're seeing play out right now is motor vehicles. And motor vehicles, um, the federal government started in the 1970s saying, how much more efficient can we make these? California then pushed that envelope further and said, we're going to set a greenhouse gas emissions performance standard on our motor vehicles. And just this month, the federal government has then adopted the California standard. And so that there was a role in federal R&D. There was a role for the private automakers to invest in the R&D. And there was a role for standards and performance standards um, to push the envelope forward. So just to clarify that example, though. I mean, because it's a great example, but it's an example of having the state effectively require consumers or firms to pay a little bit more to adopt existing technology. What you just described was not a strategy to create new technologies. So one of the examples that's given a lot is acid rain. Well, cap and trade worked really well on acid rain. Well, yeah, the technologies that already existed when the 1990 law passed so you, and, you're, and, and the technologies, we kind of laugh at them because they're so simple. It's scrubbers on smokestacks and then low-sulfur coal from the, um, from the Wyoming basin. And so you had very inexpensive... So you're able to get 
rid of acid rain at a very low price. Consumers didn't even notice it for electricity. The current low-carbon technologies as alternatives to coal are still much more expensive. It's not a couple bucks more a month or something. I mean, it's like the Chinese government isn't being irrational or economically backwards by building a lot of coal plants. They're doing it because it's such a cheap form of baseload energy to run their steel mills and their factories. And so... I agree that you know, consumers, especially in the wealthy world, will pay a premium. And increasingly, the Chinese are paying a premium for cleaner sources of power. And that's great. But the question is, how big of a premium will they pay? Will they, pay? they won't pay, pay 10% more. They might even pay 20% more when you get into things like solar panels, which are five times more expensive. When Though you get dropping into, very rapidly. The price of PV is dropping. Well, it's dropping really rapidly, but it's still very high. In other words... The whole point of a cap-and-trade system and point of price on carbon is to make up for the difference. And our point is you can't get that difference – you can't make up for that difference politically because the political process and the American people are not going to uh, – do not want to pay that much more for their energy. Michael Schellenberger is president of the Breakthrough Institute. We're discussing cap-and-trade and climate change at Climate One. We also have Kristen Eberhard from Natural Resources Defense Council and Larry Goulder from Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's look at California then. Uh, point taken about the political process can distort and mess up a good thing. Uh, California has is putting the building blocks for a cap-and-trade system. Would you think that it's uh, more true or more, more simpler, more elegant than what happened federally? Kristen, you're involved in California. Compare what's happened here to the mess in Washington. Can I actually, I I want to address one of Michael's points, which I think plays into California's program. And that's the assertion that low-carbon energy is always more expensive than high-carbon energy. And that is absolutely not true. In In California and across the nation, we found that the cleanest, fastest, cheapest source of energy is energy efficiency. It's very low carbon. It's zero carbon because it means not using energy and yet getting the same service. So I I think what you're talking about is other forms of of low carbon energy, but um, this very cheap form of of low carbon energy is a cornerstone of California's program. So it's a way of getting, um, reducing the greenhouse gas emissions from our energy sources uh, by getting more of what you want, which is warm water, heat, light, from less energy. Can so, I actually respond on the efficiency thing just before we go to California? Because yeah, an important it's, question is whether efficiency actually reduces energy use. So I'm sure you're familiar with rebound and backfire. Um, and, you know, when... Which uh, are? What, what's rebound? Well, so in, in the 19th century, Quickly, when, rebound, the Watt, yeah. when Watt invention, invented the steam engine, it was such a more efficient way to produce energy from coal that everybody widely predicted, they said, well, we're going to use a lot less coal. And there was an economist named Stanley Jevons, a British economist, who said, actually what's going to happen is that we're going to find more uses for that energy, and we're going to use more coal as a result. He then proceeded to say that we're going to run out of coal, and that's where he got wrong. But um, that, 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 uh, they called it a paradox, but actually what we find throughout history is that economies become much more efficient at creating wealth out of energy. We use less and less energy to create more and more wealth. That's a trend. That efficiency trend has been going on for 150 years. But what ends up happening is that increasing efficiency actually results in more energy consumption. Uh, We find more ways to use energy. Uh, We have more appliances. And uh, and what you end up getting as we electrify our societies, um, as we um, find more and more uses uh, uh, for our appliances, is that energy consumption rises inexorably. So are you saying efficiency is a bad thing or should not be a, an energy priority? No, I'm, I'm actually saying energy efficiency is a great thing for economic growth. It is not a strategy to reduce energy consumption or emissions. Larry Goulder? Yeah, um, there is a rebound effect, and it's been studied, uh, perhaps not as thoroughly back in Jevons's time, but recently in the context of, of uh, fuel economy standards for automobiles. And as you indicate... Or as you suggest, uh, if you make automobiles more more fuel efficient, on the one hand, if you're going to do the same amount of driving, you're going to consume less less gasoline. That's great. On the other hand, make cars more fuel efficient, it means the amount of gas that you pay per mile is going to be less. You might do more driving. So indeed, there's a rebound effect. However, I disagree with your assumption or your claim that, in fact, the rebound effect entirely offsets uh, the other effect. In fact, studies for uh, CAFE standards or fuel economy improvements indicate that the rebound effect at most 
is 25%. So you get about a 25% offset. You still get a big reduction in fuel consumption. And other studies suggest it's less than that. So I think it's a mistake. It's not consistent with the empirical evidence to indicate that the rebound effect is going to entirely annihilate the gains from energy efficiency. There's two other things I'd like to mention. We talk about history. Well, I think that I can see where your concern is, that you're saying that the success of cap and trade under the Clean Air Act, Title IV, which actually achieved a 50% reduction in emissions, may not be applicable to the carbon dioxide problem or the greenhouse gas problem today because, in fact, I think you're right, there were more opportunities for reducing emissions of, of, of um, sulfur dioxide there. There were is easy, relatively cheap to put in scrub, scrubbers, at least compared to some of the things we need to do today. And also there was possibilities for low sulfur coal. That's all true. However, even today, if there are more restricted uh, opportunities for reduction in, in carbon dioxide and fossil fuel use than in the past, there's still the fact that you're not just operating in terms of how we produce. We're also, there's another channel or margin that leads to reduced emissions, and that's consumer behavior. And so if you put a price on carbon, it ends up being passed through to some extent in terms of electricity prices, and study after study shows that people do respond in terms of electricity. They have more discretionary and less discretionary needs for electricity. So when the price goes up, they conserve. Now, you also indicate that politics won't allow for that. You might be right. So I, I'm not claiming that that's going to be fun or that people are going to allow for it. But I am going to say that there is this possibility for significant consumption reduction uh, under cap and trade. And by the way, if you really are concerned about higher prices... One thing you can do is have in a cap-and-trade system something called a safety valve or price ceiling so that once the price gets up above a certain level or to a certain level, it doesn't go any higher. Finally, I want to emphasize that I do agree emphatically that over the long run, cap-and-trade isn't going to be enough. We need game-changing technologies. So we need some various incentives of the type that Kristen was talking about and you have mentioned, uh, Michael, in order to try to stimulate breakthrough technologies. But I would argue that it's going to be a lot more costly if we try to do this through subsidies to R&D alone, not accompanying it with a policy that in the shorter term can induce conservation, such as cap and trade. My colleague at Stanford, Steve Schneider, and I have a paper where we did a comparison of two policies, one where we reduced emissions just by pricing, like cap and trade, and one where we combined it with R&D policy, and we got about a 30% reduction in cost just over the next 50 years. If we, if we use both rather than one. So I really feel that it's a mistake. We're, we're sort of um, uh, confining ourselves uh, if we only focus on the long-run issue and, and, and forget about conservation in the shorter term. Larry Gulder is the chair of the economics department at Stanford. We're discussing cap-and-trade. Yeah, just a, um, um, there's a lot there. But uh, on, on the big picture point around technology innovation. I mean, I would ask around behavior change. I mean, it's a funny thing. Uh, only on sort of environmental issues do we insist that there be individual behavior change. You know, it's sort of like, well, we'll all ride the bus more, or we'll, you know, we'll, um, we'll all take these personal measures. But it's kind of a strange thing. I mean, like, what other problems do we actually deal with in that way. Well, health, eating a healthy diet, diabetes is, is dependent but, but, on But those are, those are problems choices. that affect the individual person. And we're talking about global warming, which is a global problem caused by... In other words, we can create ways of powering our civilization that do not emit carbon dioxide, that massively reduce our carbon. So why would our focus be on, in, on, on demanding that people change their behavior by raising the price of them living their lives? Um, so you kind of go, well, what are the obstacles? Well, there's a set of technological challenges. Solar panels have got to much more efficiently convert sunlight to electricity. Um, you've got to find very cheap ways of storing energy for wind and solar, which are intermittent sources of energy. Nuclear power plants have got to get um, a lot smaller, a lot uh, uh, safer, um, so they can be mass-produced and very cheaply generate low-carbon power. Um, there's a set of very clear technological challenges, and I would suggest that in an early era in American life, we would have gone, those are things that we, that are, those are public goods. You know, the language of public goods has even been lost. We say externalities, market failure, with the assumption that these are things that the market should do, when the whole history of energy development, of energy modernization, of technological development, of technological progress, is one where the state, and in particular the military, is explicitly driving the bleeding edge of these technologies. So you have to kind of go, why, when you end up with this kluge-like bill 
that would allow emissions to be 140% in the first year of the program compared to 2005, when it would cost, according to an independent analyst, Synapse, four times more. The, the program would cost four times more than the cost of actually implementing the program. Why would you go and pursue that route rather than pursuing the route that we've historically pursued, the route that has proven itself time and time again? Um, and I would just, on the efficiency point, um, you're only looking at the immediate rebound of efficiency. In other words, my argument is not that you're just going to drive your car more because you drive a hybrid. Um, I agree with you. That's, you're going to get a rebound that's probably more like 20 25%. I'm talking about economy-wide. When you go make coal plants much more efficient, I mean, uh, coal plants and steel plants much more efficient, and you start making things much more efficiently, the whole economy grows faster than it would have than when the basic input, one of the core factors, energy, becomes a lot cheaper. And I would point out that you know, in, in the 19th century, there were a lot of people that were worried that the machines were going to just, the, the Luddites were worried that these new looms were going to obviate the need for their labor. Um, and a bunch of people said, look, and people occasionally do it still, they kind of go, well, the ATM machine is going to make it so we don't have any bankers anymore. Or the Excel spreadsheet will obviate the need for accountants. We kind of realized, well, actually, what they do is they increase the number of bankers and accountants that you have. The same thing is true for every factor, every key factor in the economy. The same thing true for energy as it is for labor. There are lots of computer models that have looked at this issue, that introduced policies to stimulate energy efficiency. I don't know one that over the long run suggests that improving energy efficiency actually leads to an increase in energy use relative to business as usual. And that's over the long run. So, well, Breakthrough has a white paper coming out about efficiency, so we'll love to get your review of it before it goes to publication. So to, to capsulate what you're saying is that you don't think that the government should have price, put a price on carbon, that there should be massive government investment in R&D to, to fund technologies that would bring energy cleaner, cheaper than coal. Like I said, I would favor a price on carbon as long as you understand that price on carbon is not going to get high enough anywhere in the short term to cause the kind of behavior change and the kind of firm behavior change. So, in other words, I support something. I would support cap and invest. I would support um, a price on carbon if the money was used to solve these very specific technological problems. We sometimes kind of get a little overwhelmed. We go, well, there's it's fossil fuel economy. We've got to, it's just We've got to change. It's like actually there's a set of things that need to be done, and the only actor in our society that is capable of instigating those changes is the state because energy is so capital intensive. This is not like starting up a little company in your garage. This is stuff that really, really requires the concerted powers of the American government. And we sometimes in this debate talk about cap and trade. I think this is Kristen's point. Cap and trade is it's the only, it's the big tool in the box when in fact there's, there's many tools in the box. Let's talk about California. Uh, we've been talking kind of broadly and nationally. California's moving in this direction. What have they done well? What have they done not well here in California? Kristen? So I, I think, Michael, that you had, a, that you were talking about that in this realm we're asking people to, um, to change their behavior, to sacrifice, to sort of scrimp, you know, put on the sweater, walk, you know, take Bart to, to get over here today. Um, and, and instead of doing the big technological changes that we need to do. So I can say that in California, that's not what we're doing. We're not saying to people, you can't get in your car, you have to ride a bike, you know, you, you have to put on a sweater, you've got to turn down the heater. What we're saying is you can get more with less. And so there's, there's a, a variety of ways in which we're doing that. So, the, so one is energy efficiency, um, and here's where the refrigerator story is, um, is apropos. We weren't saying to people, you can't have cold food anymore, or you have to have less cold food, you know, only one leftover per week. Um, we said, great, you know, have a big refrigerator, but it's going to use less. Um, you talked about walking to work. So in the, in the transportation sector, we have a policy in California um, which says that each of the metropolitan regions in the state has to come up with a plan for how to grow, how to have the same amount of economic growth, the same number of people living and working in their areas, but that they have the option to drive less, that they have the option to walk to work or bike to work. Not that they have to, but that if you want to get a little exercise, if you want to get outside, if that is something that's important to you, you know, for your health and your um, 
well-being that you can, as opposed to right now, much of California is planned in a way that people don't have that choice. They are, they're required to use their car in order to get to work. So, um, and, and then in terms of, of cars, it's the same thing. We're not saying to people, oh, you, you have to have a little a beater. We're saying... The, the cars are going to just be better. They're going to work better. You're going to get the same thing that you want, but, but use less. So I'd say California across the board is, is working on improving this technology, improving the way that we plan um, our communities, the way that we roll out technologies in order to get more from less without asking people to scrimp and sacrifice. Kristen Eberhardt is a legal director at the Natural Resources Defense Council. We're discussing cap and trade and climate change. Larry Goulder? Yeah, I think if we look historically, California has really been a leader in uh, energy efficiency improvements uh, and, and as well as in uh, pollution reductions. Um, as many people know, over the last 25, 30 years, while and, uh, and electricity use has increased substantially in the nation as a whole, it flattened out pretty early in California. Some of that, a lot of, some of that was due to government policy. Some of that was due to demographic changes, changes in the sizes of households, and other uh, other features like that. And also exporting energy-intensive industries, perhaps. Well, there's to... some of that. Let me get to that in a second. Uh, the um, uh, one of the other ways that California has been, uh, I think, a leader is in the innovation of different kinds of policies. Some of which uh, Kirsten has already mentioned. Instead of having tough, inflexible command and control approaches, they introduced performance standards, which basically allowed a lot more flexibility as how to meet environmental goals. I think the real question is how California is going to do as we move forward. As many people know, there's uh, AB32, uh, the Global Warming Solutions Act, was enacted in uh, 2006, September 2006, and it's to go into effect uh, at the beginning of 2011. And that contains a number of elements, I think, most of which are, are quite favorable and combines various performance standards, various incentives, and it has a cap-and-trade component. But now to get the issue of exporting, uh, exporting our industry, I think the biggest challenge or one of the biggest challenges that the state has is if it introduces a climate policy on its own and not accompanied by similar actions elsewhere, it is going to put domestic industry or California's industry to disadvantage relative to industry outside of the state. And there are some measures that are being worked out by the California Air Resources Board to try to deal with this problem and prevent this kind of emissions leakage. But it's really a challenge, no question about it. So then ultimately, the question you might want to ask is, do we want to stomach or suffer a little bit of leakage over the short term on the hope that California's efforts will prove good enough that it will precipitate or hasten the arrival of a broader regional policy or federal policy. And by the way, a regional policy called the Western Regional Initiative involving, I think, six states and two Canadian provinces seven. is... Or seven Canadian provinces. Seven, seven states, states, four and, Canadian provinces. Four. How time change? <laughs> a lot sorry. of states and provinces. It's <laughs> growing all the time, as we speak. Uh, is, is being worked out. And so once... if Assuming that does go through as planned, that would eliminate a lot of the leakage problem. But effectively, global climate change is a global problem in that if any subgroup or nation alone works on the problem or any state alone works on the problem, it really does suffer this problem of competitiveness disadvantage. So I think what Californians, those who favor California's policy, climate change policy, are banking on is the idea that California will be a test bed, it will be a model, it will show that you won't kill the economy if you introduce a serious climate policy, and therefore it will speed up the arrival of something at a broader level. We should also say, Larry Gulo, that you've advised the Air Resources Board, chaired a committee advising the governor. Yes. Um, uh, Michael Schellenberger, what's California doing right well, I mean, California, you know, as Larry said, I think, and this is where I really agree, I mean, it is global warming. So the question is, for California, is what is California doing to accelerate the development of low-carbon power technologies that can be picked up around the world? So, keep, you know, just keep your eyes on tripling energy consumption by 2050 at the same time that you need to reduce emissions 80%. So you're talking, you know, various estimates is like one nuclear power plant a day needs to get built between now and 2030s to Which achieve is that, that goal. 12 terawatts? There's a, it's, it's yeah, a scary it's a, big yeah, numbers out there. It's a huge, it's a, it's a really, you really, it actually really helps to kind of run the math yourself so you can really appreciate what a challenge it is. And that, that assumes a huge amount of efficiency, by the way. So we can disagree about the rebound and backfire effect and still agree that we're talking about deploying a huge quantity of low-carbon power technologies. 
Um, I think that the, this older pollution paradigm is quite understandable. You know, it worked really well with local problems. And so, of course, we're accustomed to ask, well, how do we do this in California, as though this is sort of a problem in California, um, where you can attach you know, filters to the ends of pipes or catalytic converters, do all sorts of things to improve local air and water quality in California. Um, and we did those things. Uh, but then you kind of get, at, over a series of years, uh, this idea that we're going to have this kind of global carbon market and that every country in the world, including China and India, will be part of this global carbon market and they'll agree to these hard limits and they'll reduce their emissions year after year. And it just got completely um, debunked by the, fa- by the failure of the United Nations process. The idea was, oh, well, we'll go to Copenhagen and China will agree to this. And the developing world is like, why are we going to, why do you want us to sacrifice or slow our development because of a problem that you fundamentally created. The development imperative trumps all of this stuff. Whether that's rational or irrational, it just does. And the sooner that we come to grips with that, the sooner that we can get focused on what we need to do to actually deal with this problem. So the answer is just technology, technology, technology. Everything else, frankly, is a distraction from that fundamental focus. If it doesn't contribute to radically accelerating technology innovation, then it's just not serious climate policy. But can't policy help technology It can. And so I think there's um, – I think some of the interesting stuff when you start to look at it is uh, California has had subsidies to deploy renewables like solar and wind. Um, uh, there's been some criticisms of them that maybe we overpaid. Um, I don't actually mind overpaying for early technologies. I think that's part of what – the, that's part of what we do. That's a public good. Do you have solar panels on your house that you overpaid for? I actually can't afford to overpay for solar. When I say I support it, I mean I support it as a collective thing. Um, <laughs> for other people to pay. Okay. Uh, I have solar uh, panels that I overpaid yeah, for. Yeah, well, you're know. a better person than I am. No, no. Um, uh, um, but, I mean, I, I think it's okay to over. But I think, that, I think that what we're learning from that is that, and what we're really learning from the experience of the Defense Department, especially around IT, is that the military is a customer of these technologies. They're not subsidizing these. They're not subsidizing computers. They're actually customers of those Buying products. It, sure. And, and, the, and the, that procurement model has, has actually created tra- creates transparency, competitiveness within technologies. It sometimes gets dismissed as picking technological winners. We're always picking technological winners. So the question is, how do you set up a technology program that really gets the kind of radical innovation that you need? Uh, Michael Schellenberger is president of the Breakthrough Institute. We're discussing climate change at Climate One. I'd like to welcome you to come up to the microphone if you'd like to, uh, to ask a question at this time. Also mentioned that the Pew organization today recently came out with a study of what the U.S. military is doing on, on deploying technologies as, as a purchaser. They have a $20 billion a year uh, energy budget, and they looked at the Air Force, Army, Marines, Navy, what, what they're doing. That's an interesting study that just came out. Um, so let's go to our uh, first audience question, if we can decide who's first in line. Yes. Um, so we're talking a lot about what federal and state legislation is going to look like. If federal legislation does get passed, how do you see that working with the state legislation that we're already working to implement? How do the two fit together? Kristen? Sure. So um, much of what California has done and is doing, we would continue to do. So the, the, the programs I've talked about, the energy efficiency programs, clean cars, um, changing the way that we do land use planning in order to have healthier communities, all of those would c- continue. And then the federal program would just harmonize um, and take care of some of the problems that Professor Goulder talked about, about leakage of industry moving out of California somewhere else so that they could continue emitting there when you have a federal program that's uh, no longer an option. So they would, the, the state and the federal would work very much in concert. But isn't there some differences in terms of where the money would go? If, if the price is put on carbon, a lot of the fight is over who gets the revenue streams, whether it goes to consumers, which industries, et cetera. Um, so how is California handling? Where is the money going to go that, that from this uh, revenue stream? So California has made no decisions on where the money goes. Uh, Professor Golder and his committee um, recommended to CARB that they auction most of the allowances and use that money to go back to invest uh, back to individuals in the form of a dividend check or a tax rebate and, and for investments and for investments and 25 percent of the money um, a significant share is the words used um, should go towards investments in exactly the sorts of things that Michael is talking about. Okay, so do we, is there agreement in terms of California's directing the money in the appropriate directions to achieve the outcomes that, that you want? I, honestly, I, I don't know enough about it to comment on it. 
Um, I suspect that they're investing in a range of things that are not actually solving these technological problems. <laughs> I suspect that they're, they're, they're subsidizing stuff that they think will work, and it's not the same. But that's a problem with your approach, is that you expect government to pick winners and losers and make smart decisions. Well, and, and why than... wouldn't I think that? I mean, I mean, we just got done describing... I mean, it seems to me that your prejudice is that government can't do that when I've just laid out multiple examples of how it can. They and so, but we kind of go, well, government can't do anything right. It's like, right, you mean like the railroads, the highways, the internet, the personal computer. I mean, what, what is it that, why, why are we so convinced that the state can't do technology policy? Larry? I'm actually sympathetic with my uh, colleague on the right on this one. I think there's actually two ways that the government can be involved in trying to promote breakthrough technologies. One is by subsidizing private uh, entrepreneurship or invention through various tax breaks or subsidies, and I think there's a significant role for that. But another is through government itself creating, uh, work, doing the work on the research, and we have government labs that are useful for that. I won't try to claim which, how much you should do one versus the other, but I do agree with, with Michael that there's a very significant and previously very successful role for government in, in conducting the research, the technology, uh, the innovation on its own. But I don't think it's the only way that the government can push forward the technologies. It can also do that by helping unleash the private market. Uh, it's one thing to do research. It's another thing to commercialize technologies. Uh, I don't have a strong particular bias, but I do talk to a lot of Silicon Valley investors who say the government shouldn't pick winners and losers. That's what we do. Right. The government should provide infrastructure and incentives. And people say, a lot of people saying recently, you know, the DOE, these are risk-averse, well-intended people, but they're not used to making big bets. They don't get rewards if they make big bets. Right. They get fired if they make big bets and lose. Taxpayers get paid. Off if They're the right about that in terms of DOE. They're wrong about it in terms of DOD. And so, I mean, if you want to take a, a, a real-life example, um, here we are. China last year passed the United States as the largest recipient of foreign direct investment in clean tech. They got $35 billion last year. So this talk of losing the clean energy race to China is real. It's happening now. They're leading in basically every clean energy technology. Our big solar firms, the guys in Silicon Valley, they're like, yeah, we're America's biggest solar company. They're producing all their panels in China. So I'm a little bit like, um, you know, yeah, those guys are going to go make a lot of money, but they're going to make a lot of money, by the way, in a country that has no carbon price, no cap-and-trade policy, is doing this all through direct state investment. We, America just lost one of the most, our most brilliant... Uh, technologists uh, uh, from Applied Materials. He moved himself and his whole family to China because they built for him a massive R&D laboratory to test um, new manufacturing of solar panels. So we're losing not only our manufacturing... Still with Applied Materials, but yeah, all the action's over there. But but it's, in other words, when you lose your manufacturing base and your innovation base, what do we have left? Next question. Yes, thank you. Uh, there's been discussion and perhaps some consensus that there should be some form of cap-and-trade or cap-and-invest, and clearly there's agreement at the higher level, but no real pragmatic discussion of how this will affect consumers. And I think you all have your, ideal, your idea of what cap-and-trade would be. You know, Obviously, politics is going to shift it, but how is this really going to affect us? What's the cost-benefit analysis for consumers? Thank you. Well, in fact, there are a number of studies about that. And uh, the fact of the matter is the cap-and-trade would, uh, in general, it will raise prices because it would make, in effect, producers have to pay for the emissions that they create because every time you emit another unit, you have to buy another allowance, and there's a market price for allowances. That gets passed through to consumers. There's, There's no easy way around that. Some folks have suggested, well, we should insulate consumers from the price increases. For example, some electric utilities have said we should insulate, we should somehow get um, a rebate from the government so we don't have to raise electricity prices. On some grounds, that may seem appealing, but on on other grounds, it entirely contradicts a key purpose of cap and trade, which is to encourage conservation. So I think there's other ways of protecting consumers. It was alluded to already by Kristen which is that if you auction a lot of the allowances, you can bring in a lot of revenue, and that revenue can be redirected back to households as under the cap and dividend program or it can be used to pay for tax cuts. And you could, in particular, target the households that you think are most deserving. For example, you could target the, the revenue rebate, especially at the lower end of the income distribution, to undo what would otherwise be an inequitable situation. 
Finally, let me say that there are numerous models, both at the computer models, both at the federal level and at the um, California level, that have tried to estimate the impact on consumers. So, for example, uh, the Air Resources Board from California just recently did a study that indicates that its program in the year 2020 would have an effect of raising the cost to consumers somewhere per household, somewhere between uh, about $25 a household to $240 per household. Per Another year? St- per year? Uh, per year, but this is in the year 2020. Okay. So that's when it's in full effect, when the, 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 the cap has really been ratcheted down a lot. A, a study by Charles River Associates uh, using less optimistic assumptions assumes that it has a range of about $1,200 to $2,200 per household. That's the cost, though, in 2020, and recognize that the average California household over this period under this policy will increase its income by about $17,000. So in the worst case, instead of having your income go up per household by, by $17,000, it's going to go up by, let's say, fifteen or sixteen. Now, you might still find that that's unacceptable, but I'm just trying to give an idea of, of, the, of the magnitudes here. I think there's been federal studies, what the EPA likes to say, a postage stamp a day. Is that an accurate number? Uh, your math was faster than mine. I don't know. But okay. that, that, that's, right. And that same study said that, they would, that, the, that it would cost a postage stamp a day, but it would deploy no new clean energy above what the business's usual scenario would, would deploy. Michael Schellenberger is president of the Breakthrough Institute. We're talking about climate change and cap and trade at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Next question. Uh, this is a question for Mr. Schellenberger. Uh, I, I, I agree with the basic assumption that, you know, the, the end goal needs to be getting clean energy technologies to be less than coal uh, and other fossil fuels. I guess the, the question I have, though, is um, you're, you push for, for R&D and at a time of record budget deficits, both on a state level and certainly on a federal le- level, both now and into the future. Uh, what are your thoughts for where that money would, would come from? And couldn't it also come from a, a, cap, and, uh, a cap and trade, cap and investment program where you are really directing those resources to R&D. And so then shouldn't the argument really be how do we deal with uh, the, the revenue generated from cap, cap and trade or cap and uh, auction um, versus just scrapping cap, the cap okay. altogether? Okay, where's the money? I would, I would love that. That's not what they did, though. <laughs> um, but how, how are you going to pay for the R&D? Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, the thing you have to understand is I'm not talking about setting up a new entitlement program. I'm talking about investing in the very basis of American economic growth. Do you think it should I mean, this is like, like, it's like you literally don't get economic growth without making renewed investments in productive enterprise, in the, in the infrastructure, in the technology, in the education. You starve those things, and you starve economic growth. We, you know... I, I think everybody like would agree very, with that, but where's so, the money going to come from? Well, so, so first of all, let's just be clear that in the face of a massive economic and financial crisis, we just did a stimulus program. So the idea that somehow like that, well, we don't have any money to invest is belied by the last 18 months. Um, the second thing I'd say about it is that you know, our proposal, which is for somewhere between 30 and $50 billion a year, um, is actually cheaper than the cost of Waxman-Markey, the bill that, co- that passed the House. The difference is, is that we would take... All of them, if you spend $30 billion a year, that's about $100 per person annually. Um, it's, you wouldn't even, in terms of, he said, what is the effect on consumers? I don't want consumers to even notice that, they're, that they paid a little bit more that year and that the money is being invested in the ways that we'd like to see it invested. But again, I think that you, we've got to stop being like, in other words, the whole framework that gets set up is global warming is this looming disaster and therefore we have to figure out how much to pay now to avoid costs later. And it really misses the whole history of the, modern, the modernization role and the technological role that the state has played, in particular on energy. So I think Michael's answer was $30 billion a year from the federal government, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I have a different answer, which is um, that we should leverage the private sector. So you mentioned ARA. ARA did $25 billion a year for two years. That's not happening again anytime in the near future. So that's less than what you're proposing um, for perpetuity. Compare that to the private sector, where just in the electricity sector alone, electricity utilities are going to invest $1.5 to $2 trillion 
dollars over the next 20 years. They're going to invest that one way or the other, whether they're going to do it in coal or, or nuclear or, or whatever they're going to do. So I think our challenge is to figure out how can we influence them to invest those trillions of dollars in clean technology and clean energy. And um, so I, I agree absolutely that that over the long term, in order to stabilize the climate, in order to move to a clean energy uh, future, we are going to need some new technologies, and that is going to come from RD&D. Um, but I, I guess the, the two things, points where I would um, slightly adjust your viewpoint is, one, we have some of these technologies already. They're deployable. Um, we don't have to develop them. We just have to make sure that, that all of the states, all of the countries in the world are deploying the technologies that are currently available. And then the second is, in order to get those new breakthroughs, what we really need to do is leverage the private sector. And the way that you leverage the private sector is for the government to send out a signal that says, we are going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We are going to set a cap on you or a performance standard on you, and now you, who has some capital to invest, can make a choice. And does it now look better to you? Does it look like a more certain investment to invest in coal? Or does it look like a more certain, less risky investment to invest in some new, cleaner technologies? And if the government puts out that standard and says, here's where you have to get, the private sector will respond. And they will. And what the private sector wants to know is, how good of investment is this over the long term? How certain is it? How, how much can I trust that this is going to get me a return over the long term? And so if you send out that signal, over the long term, coal is not a good investment. Tar sands are not a good investment. Over the long term, renewables and energy efficiency are a good investment. Then you, you've got trillions of dollars to play with. But, and I would just point out that the opposite is actually happening right now. Europe has a carbon price. China doesn't. China is leading the way in clean energy to the extent that European governments have done well in clean energy is because they've directly invested in the R&D and the deployment. That's the case with the, the Danish wind farms. It's the case with the German feed-in tariff. It's not been through carbon pricing. It's been through the direct investment in these technologies. But would you agree that the big money is in the private markets? Well, but what does that mean exactly? I mean, the point is that, I mean, the, the big history here is that these are investments that only the state can make. That's why you call them public goods rather than private goods. I can, we, Larry and I could spend a lot of time talking about all the barriers to the private sector making these combined investments that they need to make. But for a variety of reasons, they're not going to make those investments. You can make energy cost a little bit more, but those investments in technology are still not going to come from the private sector. Let's go to the next question. Just one example. So um, in terms of whether setting out this standard really attracts the money, California is a good example here. So California last year, last quarter, got 60% of all of the clean tech investment in the country. So in 2009, we got over $2 billion invested in California's clean tech sector, which was equivalent to actually a tiny bit more than all of the investments in California's software sector, all of the investments in our biotech sector. And the reason that all this money was flowing into California is because California has put out the signal and said, we are going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The, you know, Come invest your money here because it's safe. These investments are going to pay off here over the Those investments term. are going to California because we invested in information technology, microchips, personal computers, University of California over several decades. It had nothing to do with AB32. Larry Goulder? I think that there might be a false dichotomy here in that I agree completely with Michael that where we're going to really get the investments in uh, new technology, it has to come from government support in one way or another, either by providing incentives directly to research and development to the private sector or through government labs. Emphatically agree, and I think that China has really done a lot of that. Um, However, I think it's important to recognize that this does not make it less than useful to also have a price on uh, emissions, for example, through cap-and-trade. Because one thing that cap-and-trade do, does, as I have mentioned before, is that it provides ways to encourage conservation, both by producers changing their production methods and by consumers as well. A lot of people have sort of banked on cap-and-trade unleashing a great deal of investment. And it does, it helps, but it doesn't necessarily unleash a lot. In fact, there are studies that suggest the effect on investment of cap-and-trade overall is not so great. But I don't think that's a reason to dismiss cap-and-trade, as I emphasize. Over the near-term and medium-term, it's really very important in helping keep costs down by encouraging conservation. And so uh, I really think that we shouldn't necessarily make the standard for keeping cap-and-trade or, more generally, pricing emissions, uh, how much it enhances investment. I think that that's, uh, that's too tough a standard. It's not the one that really is best for society. Let's get this question, please. Thank you. Um, there was some discussion on behavioral change 
And it was kind of left at that it's a preposterous idea to ask people to change to protect the environment. But I was just wondering, what do you think about, at this point in time, the people are using more than ever before and wasting more than ever before. So why wouldn't you be supporting a behavioral change when there's so much waste going on? What's wrong? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, and I think it's understandable, right? So, so many of us grew up when you would throw your McDonald's bag out the car window, you know, or you'd like, uh, you know, we had a lot of success. But we all we all we all recycle now, so we experience these things, and we actually like doing them. They make us feel good about ourselves. The problem is, is that you don't. Is that well? There's a few problems. I mean, one of the first problems is that here we are in a developed country where so much of the basic big investment and, and, and also in our own consumption has already been made, right? So we've got, I mean, look where we are, in a really developed infrastructure environment. So when we talk about consumption, it's not just buying bobbles at Kmart. It's about overall energy consumption of a society. So when you have a place like China where they've really had the biggest poverty alleviation program in the, in the history of the human race, places like India, there are still people that need to consume a lot more energy to build that basic infrastructure. So I think when you... We don't have time to do it really right now. Uh, I'd be happy if you want to come to our website, which is thebreakthrough.org, or elsewhere you can see some of the calculations of just how massive this transition to a low-carbon economy is going to be and why you know, driving your car a little bit less or taking BART a little bit more is just so minuscule as to really not even make an impact. I think if you want to take BART or ride your bike and eat organic, those are great things to do because they might make you happier, you live your life better. But I, I think we've spent all, we've wasted a lot of time thinking that those might be uh, strategies to deal with global warming. Isn't that the tragedy of the commons? The tra- oh, are we going to talk about the tragedy of the commons, Larry? <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea, I mean, if other people here say, well, there's, there's, uh, we have 100 people, each say they're 1% of the problem, so no one should do anything? Right? The tragedy of the commons is one way of looking at it. I mean, I, I think, I think the way to, one way that we can look at it is that we have a world with, you know, 1.5 billion people that don't have any electricity. They need to consume a lot more energy. We've got a big challenge, which is how do we triple the amount of energy that we produce over the next several decades while making sure that you know, we reduce our emissions 80%. That's a big technological challenge. We can kind of debate models and think about this in various ways, but I think that's at the, at the bottom of it. I think at the heart, though, what you're saying, Michael, is that if we don't rely mainly on technology-stimulating policies. It's going to be really, really costly for us, and we're not going to get a whole much of a reduction. That doesn't agree with studies by Charles River Associates uh, and by the Air Resources Board, where they commissioned two models, where they indicate that the reductions required under California's new climate law, which is uh, approximately, I think, 29% reduction uh, in emissions relative to baseline or business as usual by the year 2020. So that's a big reduction, 29%. And it's coming partly through cap-and-trade, as Kristen indicates. I think it's more than 20% contribution from cap-and-trade, maybe 25 But also through other things that are basically not yet requiring brand-new technologies, but just introducing new efficiency standards, uh, a low-carbon fuel standard, um, a renewable portfolio standard, limits on gra- uh, greenhouse gases per mile of automobiles. In the way, this is causing shifts among existing technologies. Now, I grant you that over the long term, we need a lot more than that. But I think if those models are all correct, and one of them comes from Charles River Associates, which is, you know, has a strong business clientele, so it's not likely that they would want to underplay it or underestimate the cost. For in these models, the costs are not severe, and the emissions reductions are great. The cost to the American economy, to the California economy, according to the Charles River model, which is the less optimistic, is that it would cost, uh, it would reduce uh, California income by between 1.4 and 2.2 percent in the year 2020 relative to what it would otherwise be. And that means that instead of growing, California growing the economy by about uh, 29% from here to 2020, it'll grow from somewhere between 27 and 28%. So still small cost, big reductions, and even before getting the game-changing technology. So I think that uh, if the models are at all right, and I know you can, one can uh, disagree about that, uh, it suggests that one can do it with some of the conventional technologies as well, at least we're for getting, a while. Pardon me, we're getting very close to the end. One last quick question, quick answer, and we'll wrap up. Thank you very much. Michael, a few moments ago you mentioned Europe and some of the staunchest skeptics of cap-and-trade. Uh, and perhaps they have a tendency to cherry-pick some of the uh, most egregious examples of shortcomings of the systems over there. Are the things that the skeptics say 
I think they're critics, right? The critics, critics yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. exactly. Um, are these items, are they true? And also, are, are there, are any of it things that a proposed system of policies here could avoid doing, such as, you know, you see corruption and market of, of the trade. Okay, itself. what can we so, learn from Europe? Yeah. That was a great question. I mean, the first thing you have to remember about Europe is that they had a carbon price that was, that was, that was around $40 a ton, CO2. And at the same time that they had a carbon price that high, which is about, uh, which is two to four times higher than what the carbon price would be under the House legislation, um, that they, they went ahead and had plans to build 50 new coal plants on the continent. So even putting a carbon price that high, and incidentally, the models showed that at that price, it would have been cost-effective to use alternatives. But political reality was that coal remained king in Europe. Um, so I think one thing that people thought is they said, well, that's because they didn't have it. They didn't. They, they didn't. They didn't. They, they didn't do the allocations right, and they should have done the pollution differently. But the reality is, is that the reason that Europe didn't do the allocations right and they gave away too many permits is for the same reasons that Waxman Markey is such a disaster. It's that you've got incumbent fossil fuel interests and an economy and a, and a whole civilization that runs on these really antiquated but powerful fuels. And moving away from them is going to require that we have technologies that are just far more advanced than they are now. I mean, if, if, if we had alternatives that were as cheap as, um, as we would like them to be, and as some, some folks in the environmental movement think they are, then you wouldn't have the, the public resistance to pain, or to, you wouldn't have so much resistance to the legislation, you wouldn't have so much backlash. It's not like there's a conspiracy of people who are trying to, like, you know, there is a big lobby, but it's not like there's a conspiracy to keep us addicted to fossil fuels. We, there's a, there's a uh, long-standing several hundred years of investments in these, in these technologies that make them very hard to get rid of until you have new disruptive technologies that come along to replace them. We've got to wrap it up there, Michael. Uh, last word, Larry Goulder, and then Chris Eberhard. Oh, no, except that I guess a key point that I would like to leave folks with is the idea that technology change is crucial. It's important. I very much agree with Michael on that. But I also think there's a very important role for uh, pricing emissions, whether it's through cap and trade or a carbon tax. And that lowers our overall cost of, how we want to go, of getting to where we want to go, particularly over the short and medium term. It's really important because it can, that dual approach can help lead to conservation and, and lower the overall cost to society. And I think there's lots of empirical evidence for that, both historically and through uh, various economic analyses. Kristen? I just want to agree that I think the last point Michael made is really important, which is that we have a lot of entrenched interests that have a lot of money, a lot of investments, um, uh, and a lot of inertia um, with our older fossil fuel economy. So the challenge that we face is how to overcome that inertia and how to give more market share and more power to the new technologies that some of which we have and some of which we need to develop. And I think that the way in which we do that is to have the government send a signal to the market which allows both private and public money to move away from those older fuels and to um, engage in this sort of iterative, cumulative technological change that will over time let our newer cleaner technologies, gain market share um, so that we can stabilize the climate in 2050. We have to wrap it up there. Kristen Eberhardt is a legal director at the Natural Resources Defense Council. We'll be discussing climate change and cap and trade also with Larry Goulder, chair of the Department of Economics at Stanford University, and Michael Schellenberger, president of the Breakthrough Institute. I'm Greg Dalton, and thank you all for coming to Climate One.